Radio. Church Fathers, the Cappadocian Fathers to St. Ambrose. A talk by Kevin Wagner at the Immaculata Mission School 2014, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. Okay, so look, we'll, we'll start with the Cappadocians, we'll jump to Chrysostom and uh, Ambrose and we'll see about Augustine. Uh, just want to uh, say that the, the Cappadocians, so Gregory and Basil, so Gregory of Nyssa and Basil, were bro- Basil the Great, uh, were brothers, uh, and Gregory uh, Nazianzen was a good mate of, uh, Gre- of Basil in particular, uh, and he ended up becoming Patriarch of Constantinople. So uh, collectively they're sometimes described as the, the Eastern equivalent of Augustine, okay? So Augustine is like the great father of the West and the Cappadocians together have sort of you know, managed to sort of be about the same as him. Uh, shows you how good Augustine was. Uh, now, we shouldn't ignore the fact that Basil and Gregory uh, had an older sister, Macrina, who was great. Like, she was just good. She... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she's just good. Uh, she, like, both Basil and Gregory, as as I'd mentioned earlier, you know, they they were typical of their time. They had gone off to Athens and Alexandria and and learnt philosophy with all these great teachers, and they came back a little bit full of themselves, you could say. Uh, Gregory, in particular, you know, he thought he was going to be some great rhetorician and all the rest, and and uh, he was whinging and complaining to his older sister as uh, she's busy dying. And, uh, well, she was on a deathbed, you know. So, uh, and, and she said to him, and he's written this, and he, so it's probably true. Uh, she said, won't you cease being insensible to the divine blessings? Won't you remedy the, the ingratitude of your soul? Will you not compare your position with that of your parents who had suffered a lot through the persecutions? And he had martyrs in his background. And, uh, and basically, long and short of it is that she told him to pull his socks up and start taking account of the blessings that he'd received from the Lord. Uh, so also with, uh, uh, with Basil, he's come back after this time of education uh, and he was puffed up beyond measure with the pride of oratory, and he was looking down on local dignitaries, and Macrina took him by the hand and very quickly drew him towards Christianity, uh, the Christianity which put aside the glories of the world and despised fame. And we see the effect that she's had on, on the church because... Gregory and Basil ended up becoming two of the greats. Uh, there is also another brother, Peter, who became a bishop as well, but uh, not of the same sort of stature. You know, he was playing for the B-grade side, you know. Uh, so the Cappadocians were very big on fighting heresy. Uh, they, they fought against the Arians quite a bit. But the, it's a real sign of humility that, that uh, Basil actually had, had had some Arian tendencies at times, 
the, remember that the, the Aryans, well, one particular brand of Aryanism uh, said that Christ is like the Father in all things according to the scriptures. And this is sort of the, the brand of Arianism that Basil sort of picked up. It was a little bit vague, okay, because the Arian position tried to say, well, God, is, uh, God the Father is, is very different to God the Son. Now, they're not of the same substance, okay, that the, the Son was created, okay, not begotten, okay, and of, uh, somehow of a different substance to the Father. Now, you know how we all had to go through this, this bit of a hassle of trying to learn the new creed a couple of years ago, okay? And we've now got this word consubstantial with the Father. It's really important, okay? Uh, my parents have said to me, oh, but, you know, what was wrong with it as one being with the Father? And, and I say, well, Dad, do you actually know what it means to be of one being with the Father? And he was like, no, but, like, it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> I'm sorry, it does. Being, essence, usia, substance, these are, these are deeply philosophical concepts. And to be of one substance, consubstantial, is really important. Uh, and so Basil sort of held to this idea at some times uh, of thinking that Christ's like the Father in all things, as the scriptures say, which was sort of to try and uh, placate or make happy the, the those people who were very strictly Nicene and those people who really wanted to just stick with what was in the scriptures. Because the difficulty is when you're trying to define uh, the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit straight from the scriptures, uh, it, it's quite difficult to become really, really precise. And so at Nicaea, one of the big problems was that people complained that they were bringing in philosophical terminology and that somehow this has corrupted the, the tradition, corrupted what we believe. Now, it didn't, but it was quite contentious. And this brings us to another important issue with the fathers and to conflict in the early church generally, that you had this problem of language, okay? We sort of talked about it early, uh, yesterday, uh, this tyranny of distance, but you also had this tyranny of, of different languages. And so on the one side, you've got the Latin-speaking West uh, talking about being consubstantial and their ideas about what it means, what the word substance means and all the rest. And then you've got the Greek side, we're talking about homoousia, which means one, one essence, one substance, okay? And their ideas, these Greek ideas on what ousia means. So this is a, the ongoing battle of the fourth century to try and really work out who Christ was, particularly in relation to the Father. And so even Basil struggled with it at times, but he had the humility to uh, really come back to uh, the Orthodox faith. Uh, so uh, his, we've, we've talked a little bit about Basil's conversion. Uh, one thing that, that happened after his conversion was that he became very ascetic he, in, a, in a quite a radical way. He sold all his possessions and gave the proceeds to the poor, a bit like 
Anthony, as we've heard before. Uh, and then he started establishing monastic life. So being the good uh, academic, he decided, well, if I'm going to set up a, a centre of monasticism here, then I'd better go find out how to do it. So he went on a study tour. I don't think it was just for tax deductions. And he went to Syria, Mesopotamia, Palestine, Egypt, and, uh, and learned what he could from them and came back. And he wasn't sure whether he, he, should, he should just be a hermit or whether they like, have a community of hermits in some way, if that's possible, uh, or a real communal life. Uh, and he, he actually rejected the hermit model, uh, not saying that it was, was bad or wrong, but just for him it wasn't the right thing. And he really stressed the need to, for communal living and the need for obedience in order to, to grow in love and service. Uh, after three and a half years at the School of Mission in Rome, I was talking with uh, Juan this morning, I think, uh, where's what? Um, about uh, the, this great uh, lesson that most young people learn at a school of mission or a school of formation like this, and that is from your brothers and sisters, from communal life. You can have all the lessons you like, you can do all the prayer you like, but when you wake up in the morning, uh, can you actually be patient with that person who's taking three hours to make a cup of tea in front of you? And so Basil saw the same thing. He saw this as a means for growing in holiness. Uh, now, the monks, a feature of Basil's uh, monasteries was that the monks were allowed and encouraged to share questions, desires and problems with the, with the others so that they could grow in, in love. And this is a good example for us that a true Christian communal life should be very open. Uh, we shouldn't be condemning people because they've got a question about the faith, for example. Uh, or because they have a difference of opinion. Uh, commun communal life is founded on communication. And uh, obviously in the Christian sense, it's, it's this desire to love the other. Um, outside of the monastery, we see that, the, that Basil, uh, in his establishment of the monastery and in his philanthropy, uh, was able to set up uh, hospices for travellers, schools for the poor and hospitals for the sick. Uh, and so this was a really important part of his spirituality, this uh, complete imitation of Christ. Um, but he was such a, a strong guy that he was able to, to build uh, some structures that have stood, really stood the test of time. Okay, this is a very early example of a hospital. Uh, so we could say a little bit about his episcopacy, but we can leave that for now. Perhaps we've talked a little bit about his attitude to culture. Uh, and maybe we can just sum up by saying that he, was, he earned the title The Great uh, for a number of reasons, particularly because of the fact he established uh, monasticism in the East and the, the importance of uh, communal life. Uh, it, he really influenced the, the Benedictines later on. Uh, he also was able to, to use his, his high intellect, his connections and everything to really reinforce the Nicaea position. Uh, and he was also a very 
a truly pastoral bishop. Uh, and so uh, he, he also reformed the liturgy as well. And we have some of his liturgy available to us today still. Let's jump to Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, maybe did, I think some of you might have wanted dates for Greg for Basil. Basil was born and then he died. Is that enough? He, yeah, he certainly was born. I can confirm that for you. And I don't know dates. You can come up and ask me later. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, born around 335, died around 394. Uh, less famous than his brother. Uh, but in the last few decades, he's been getting a, a lot more press. Uh, if you ever get the chance, read his, his book on the life of, Mo, of Moses. So on the life of Moses. Uh, it's, it's a very important spiritual work. It really goes through the life of Moses and uh, draws out uh, analogies with the Christian life because, of course, Moses was not Christian in a sense because he didn't know Christ. Uh, so it's a really important spiritual work. You can buy it at the Catholic bookshop, yeah, okay, just next to St. Francis, okay? Tell my wife I sent you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, now Gregory was always going to become a cleric, uh, but at some point he thought he was going to actually become a rhetorician instead, like his father, and he may have married we think perhaps the, the wife died. Uh, or maybe it's possible she, that she was, uh, she ended up in a convent. Uh, this happened uh, at times in history. Uh, and it was certainly happening at that time and happened a little bit later. Uh, now, he was, he was not very uh, talented with interpersonal skills. He was not really blessed in that way. Um, in actual fact, uh, he was accused of embezzling funds at one stage uh, and he ended up being deposed from his see, after he was made bishop, of course, and he was exiled for a period of around two years. Okay, So saints aren't always perfect. It's quite probable that Gregory made some mistakes and, uh, and all, but he could write really well. That's important. Uh, afterwards... Uh, he formed some relationships with, uh, with the emperor and the imperial household uh, and he ended up being quite involved in the council of Constantinople in 381. That's the, uh, the council which sort of finalised the creed that we say today. Uh, I think we need to push ahead. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus was a little bit older than uh, Gregory of Nyssa. He was born in 326 and died in 390. Uh, as I said, he was great mates with Basil. They, uh, but they weren't always friends. They did fall out at various stages. Uh, in particular, Basil insisted on Gregory being appointed uh, as bishop of a place called Sassima. And... He didn't want to. Gregory just basically refused. 
So he'd been appointed, but he just stayed in Nazianzus, uh, who was helping his father, who was the bishop there. Uh, and he just felt that he was being used like a pawn by Basil, which is possible, okay? You can't rule that out. But at the same time, Basil had good intentions. This was still uh, an important time in the fight against Arianism. And so Basil really wanted good men, good people, uh, in, in important positions around, the, around his area. So uh, either way, he ended up uh, uh, becoming friends again. And uh, he is really renowned as being a theologian. He's, his name is really Gregory the Theologian uh, for, for people in the East. The Orthodox refer to him as that. Uh, one little thing about his theology and the theology of the, of the Cappadocians was that they really uh, came from the negative theology school, the apophatic school, which says basically that we can't know anything about the inner workings of God. Uh, so we need to speak about God uh, in, the, in the negative because basically we, we, don't, we lack the language to be able to speak about God. Now this is, this is a, a very important way of doing theology. Uh, so, uh, so we might be able to say... Uh, that uh, we can still say things about God, but we say it from uh, a negative point of view. So we, we know that God is uh, unlimited. He can, he can do anything, okay? But that's to say, well, okay, we have limits. We know that. We have limits. There's certain things we can do, like we can't continue speaking for another hour. These are our limits. But God cannot have that. God can't have these limits. So he is unlimited. So we're actually saying something from a... We've got a positive definition. We are limited. The negative of that, or the opposite of that, is saying that God is unlimited. Okay? So it's, it's not like a depressing way of theology. It's not a negative like that sense. It's, it's a very useful way of doing theology because what on earth do we know about the inner workings of the Trinity? Really? Okay, pray about that. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. So the Roman Empire, uh, it's end of the end of the fourth century, everything starts going cactus. Okay, it's not good. Uh, there's a real big battle in a place called Adrianople and... Uh, lots of Goths start coming in, uh, making life difficult for everyone, uh, except maybe the Goths. They probably liked it. They were escaping other bad people. Uh, so the, what this ends up leading to is uh, a very uh, important appointment of the Emperor Theodosius. Okay? Uh, and he is, he is a Catholic. Okay? He's Spanish. And he comes in and he's orthodox and he really pushes the orthodox position. He actually was the last emperor to completely unite the Roman Empire. So he's very important for us. And so he started implementing a lot of, or introducing a lot of laws 
to, pr to protect and promote uh, Christianity. And he's, anyone who's interested in the, the relationship between the church and state would do very well to study this period of history because perhaps at times he went too far. Okay, this is a question for historians uh, and social commentators. So if you're interested in that, go back to him and have a look at those events. Now, one of the people who came to Constantinople, which was the, the, the home of the emperor for a lot of the time after Constantine, or certainly one of the emperors, because after Theodosius he divided the empire between his two sons, uh, so Constantinople was like the new Rome and it was the capital of the East. And John Chrysostom was almost forcibly made the patriarch, the, the head of Constantinople. He had been uh, from, he was from Antioch and he was brought up in a carriage one day to the gates of Constantinople and basically dragged inside and said, okay, you're the patriarch of Constantinople now. Uh, and, well, he, he lived up to his expect, the expectations of the people, but perhaps not of the emperor. Uh, John Chrysostom is known as the golden mouth. Okay, Chrysostom means golden mouth, meaning that he could speak pretty dang well. Uh, he, he had been formed... Uh, through a, a strongly ascetic life. Um, he had a particular way of interpreting the scriptures, which came from Antioch. There's one thing to know in the patristic era is you had an Alexandrian way of interpreting the scriptures and a way of, of interpreting the scriptures from Antioch. They were quite different ways of interpreting the scriptures, but both together help us to, to really understand the scriptures in a much deeper and more beautiful way. So, uh, John also probably had a little bit of Gregory of Nyssa in him. He was not very good with people sometimes. Uh, and one of the things he did uh, was that he decided to, uh, to give a homily uh, about... It was, the reading was about Jezebel... Okay, the, the first reading or whatever. And so he did his homily on Jezebel. Now the problem was that he made an allusion to the fact that the empress was Jezebel uh, because she liked to go to the races and you know, go to the gladiator contests and stuff probably too. Uh, and so that sort of got him offside and he almost got himself exiled for that. Uh, so it gives you an indication of his character. He wasn't scared of speaking what he thought was the truth. Um, he's written a heap, and it's, and it's well worth trying to have a read of it. Uh, but there's, there's one major factor that, that sort of overshadows his life, and that's the, the issue of the, what's called the Tall Brothers Affair, which was essentially a problem of... Uh, of a reaction against Origenism. Now, Origen is another father of the church, a very important person from the third century. He did a lot of interpretation of the scriptures. He was a guy who uh, came up with, I think it was seven 
parallel versions of the scriptures. Uh, so the seven different languages, Latin, Greek, Syriac, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he was a very wise guy, uh, bad politician. Uh, and his philosophy and his way of interpreting scriptures, etc., ended up influencing a lot of the fathers of the church uh, in some ways uh, negative, but in a lot of ways very positive. And so there became this issue with these, these monks, these tall brothers, who had basically been kicked out of Alexandria by the, the patriarch there, Theophilus, and uh, sought refuge in Constantinople with John Chrysostom. These monks had believed that you could you know, talk about God in human ways, okay, about the face of God and, and things. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, the, the, the patriarch Theophilus had, had rebuked, rebuked them and uh, they'd escaped to here. And there ended up being this big problem between Theophilus and John which was much bigger than this issue, it was all to do with John's appointment and Theophilus didn't like it, blah, blah, blah. End result, John Chrysostom is, is exiled. He's called back at one point, uh, but he ends up in exile again and he died in exile. Uh, his remains uh, were, were in uh, St. Peter's Basilica um, up until 2004, Okay, and then uh, Pope John Paul II gave them back to the Patriarch of Constantinople, which is another indication of this uh, improving relationship between the Roman Church and the Orthodox Church. Uh, it's a very practical step. I'm going to jump very quickly ahead to Ambrose. Uh, he was born in around 339 in modern-day Germany. Uh, middle-class sort of guy. A, a lot of your fathers tend to be of, of a higher class uh, because they had to have education, okay? Uh, and so he, he was really a very, uh, very intelligent man. Uh, he, his sister became a consecrated virgin uh, and uh, he, he ended up studying... Uh, a lot of the liberal arts, so uh, a lot of the Latin authors, law, Greek, etc. And he ended up becoming uh, a very famous lawyer, basically, uh, under the Praetorian prefect. And from there, he was appointed the, the governor uh, of uh, an area around Milan. So he ends up moving to Milan, and he's only about 30 at this stage, and he's the governor of, of this whole region. So... Clearly, to be in that position, he was very, very intelligent. Now, uh, his consecration, his election, is, is one of these uh, famous ones because he was only a catechumen, which meant that he was basically doing RCIA, okay? Uh, but back then, they did it properly, you know, like a couple of years, and, you know, you really went hard. Uh, and so he wasn't sure whether he was going to get baptised or not. Um, but the, the Arian bishop of Milan died and they needed a new bishop. And so the, 
there became there was a bit of turmoil, right? Because oftentimes the crowds elected the bishop. Okay, they'd say, "We want this guy. He's good." And so he's gone in with his troops to try and sort out this mess. And then the legend is that a young child started going Ambrosius Episcopus Ambrose for bishop. Okay, and everyone started picking it up, and they said, "Yeah, yeah let's do it." Okay, that's a good compromise because. You've got these Arians, you've got these Orthodox, they're fighting together and Ambrose will be able to sort it out. So he's going like, he said, no, no, I'm not doing it. I don't want to be bishop. He said, I'm not baptised, you know, I don't know enough, you know, how can I do that? And anyway, uh, the emperor said to Ambrose, okay, well, I'll give you peace. I'll guarantee you peace in Milan if you do it. Okay, so I'll send in troops and it'll be all Okay. And so within about eight days, he said, okay, well, I'll be baptised, I'll get ordained, bang. Uh, Really fast, (laughs) okay, very quickly. This happened a lot back then. Okay, so uh, he ended up getting some training, of course, okay, but post-ordination, go for it, yep. Uh, So he was ordained... Either December 373 or 374, we don't know. We know it's December, though. We know it's either December 1 or 7. So I don't know how we can know the actual day, but not the year. But anyway, this is patristics. So uh, he, was, he was trained by someone who was, was quite a Neoplatonist, a Christian Neoplatonist. Um, and so... We see that comes through again with Augustine, okay? Because Augustine also listened to Ambrose's homilies and and picked up on this. So, but what this does show us is that uh, that you can you can have this training in Neoplatonism, but still be Christian, okay? But it's a matter of integrating things well, okay? So, for example, a Neoplatonist belief in, uh, in reincarnation is not acceptable. Okay? Platonists believed that. So you had to get rid of that concept. Okay? But some of the key ideas of Neoplatonism were very, very compatible with Christianity. And so this is why a lot of the fathers were heavily influenced by them. Okay. Ambrose fought against Arianism, Paganism, uh, Judaism as well, and and there's this is a little bit of a concern. Uh, basically, some people had burnt down a synagogue, and uh, he 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 fought uh, by writing to the to the emperor saying, you know, these guys shouldn't be persecuted for burning down the temple; uh, just let them be and and so we do see this as a bit of a, uh, a little bit of a black spot on his career. But the thing I would have to say is that we don't really know all the details. All we have is a couple of letters here and there, and uh, that's it. So we, we need to be careful before casting judgment in this instance. Certainly the fact that the church has made him a saint is a pretty good sign that uh, he was a holy man and that his actions uh, for the most part 
were, well, in every instance, were uh, for the greater glory of God, even if we don't understand it. Now, another very key moment in the history of the church happens with Ambrose. There was an incident in Thessalonica in a hippodrome, which is where they have the horse races, where uh, basically someone had killed a general uh, previously, and, or a Roman soldier perhaps, I can't remember, and Theodosius, the emperor, said, okay, we're going to get them back. We're gonna, they, they can't, these people cannot treat my soldiers like this. So what I want you to do, guys, is to let everyone into the hippodrome for the races, then lock the doors, and then just massacre everyone. So the emperor says this. Okay, this is the Catholic emperor, okay? So they do it. 3,000 people dead, just like that. Men, women, children. Now, Ambrose hears about this and says, I'm sorry, your great emperor. This is not really acceptable. It's not how we roll in the Catholic Church. Okay? And Theodosius amazingly says, okay, so I'm really sorry about this. What do I do? And Ambrose says, well, you come up to Milan and... You sit in sackcloth and ashes in the back of my cathedral for six months and we'll forget about it. Not in so many words. And so he does. So the ruler of the empire comes up to Milan, sits in sackcloth and ashes and does pub public penance. Absolutely incredible. So this is a very key moment. There's also another moment where uh, Ambrose writes to the Roman Senate and uh, complains about the fact that people want to bring back the, the altar of victory, which is a, a pagan altar uh, that the senators used to worship at to try and get good results in wars. And he ends up uh, being able to appeal to Theodosius and say, no, get rid of it. Don't allow them to have it back. So this is also another key moment in the relationship between church and state. Perhaps we should leave it there. Uh, Ambrose did a lot of writing, and you, if you want some, just Google it. There you go. Augustine, huge. That's, that's another five weeks of classes. Uh, if you want to know about Augustine, start with the Confessions. Okay particularly the first few, uh, few books are biographical, and so it's, it's really useful. It's not that you're going to read in there that he was, uh, did all sorts of naughty stuff and, uh, and it'll be tantalising. Uh, it's not like that. <laughs> Different sort of confession. It's about, you know, God's good. You know, this is why. So I suggest you start there with Augustine and we might leave it there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to uh, hear about the fathers who are our fathers, who are men who have shaped our faith, men who we can look to when we're uncertain about the direction of, uh, of our life and the direction of our church. We thank you, Lord, for the great gift of the fathers that we have living today, who are fathers in a different sense. We really pray for Pope Francis, who is our father in a very true sense. 
We pray for those people who struggle to, to understand the faith, to struggle to understand the role of, of the Pope. And we pray for the Pope to become always ever more a sign and focal point of unity for us. Help us to love him more, help us to love our church more, and help us always to strive for unity among Christians. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That was Kevin Wagner with Church Fathers, the Cappadocian Fathers to St. Ambrose. For more talks from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.